0: You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network.
1: Hi, my name is Doug Mensch, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Morbius, Episode 1, covering a period of Morbius comics from 1971 to 1975. I'll explain what Morbius comics means in a little bit. But first, I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm your Morbius co-host, Ryan Schultz. Ryan, this is the first time you're on this show, and I invited you to talk about Morbius. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, what comics do you like, and why am I asking you to be on a Morbius episode?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, like I said, I'm I'm Ryan. I am from the Chicago area. I'm currently a third year in medical school, so comics has definitely been a big escape for me during this stressful time. Yeah, I bet. Some of my favorite comics have been, pretty much epic-wise, definitely the Thor comics, uh, just so they've been more sci-fi-like, and I think that's one thing that actually drew me to the Morbius comics, because we do see a lot of sci-fi elements in it.
0: Very unexpectedly, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, which which era of Thor?
1: So I read my epics in chronological order. Okay. So I am up
0: to the seventh
1: epic, which I believe is about the mid-70s. Okay. There but you know. I think it's about volume four where I really became obsessed with it. So probably around the seventies area era where it's where I think Kirby's at his peak with the art and the stories start getting more out there.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh definitely. So do you you said you read them all in chronological order. Does that mean like you flip from each line? Like you you're reading all of the nineteen sixties stuff first and then moving into the nineteen seventies, or are you just chronological in order of character? Yeah,
1: so I try to stick to the general era, but in some cases I do jump to later decades if it is starting with a volume one. So I think at the time that I read Morbius, I wasn't quite into the 70s yet, but I decided to jump ahead and read it. But I'm becoming a little more loose with those rules. So in general, if it's a volume <laughs> one, I'm going to jump on it.
0: Okay. Well, I'm glad you picked this up. What are the things that you like about Morbius? You mentioned the sci fi elements. Is there anything else?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the things that I I really liked about the Morbius epic is in complete honesty I went in with very low expectations I am an epic completist and I wanted to try to read this one before the movie came out and I remember when I sat down to start reading it I thought to myself okay let's get this over with so I went in with very low expectations <laughs> and to actually find out I actually really enjoyed a good amount of stories in it. that is it really surprised me so I think that's what really draws me to this epic
0: So I'm the same as you, very low expectations because just the chatter, the general chatter, especially when this epic was announced, was that, oh, man, I can't believe they're doing this. Why are they collecting these issues? They're... You know they're they're terrible and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, I wasn't expecting much either. And when you go in with low expectations, I think that's the best time because you can only be either you're confirmed and it's like okay, fine, these are bad. I don't feel like it was a waste of time because I knew that going in, or you're like oh these actually were a lot better than I was expecting and I had a good time. So it's kind of a a win-win situation when you go in with low expectations.
1: No, absolutely. Now
0: I think that uh, because of the movie these books came out. They came out in an omnibus form and then these epic collections, there's two Morbius epic collections that split the the, the omnibus in half and just release it in a paperback form. And it's really because of the movie that we have these because I don't think that Marvel would be inclined to release the Adventures into things Fear issues or anything on their own, if it weren't for the fact that they're trying to cash in on the, the movie release.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And we've seen this before with the Miss Marvel comic epics with well, the Black Widow. Yep. Yep. Uh, we definitely see that Marvel tends to cash in on what <laughs> movies and shows are coming out, which is very smart of them, but it is definitely some of the rare occasions where we do see the epics come out at the same time or in close proximity to the omnibus.
0: Yeah, and that was only because of the movie in fact they came these these came out i don't know like oh, a year ago now i think uh, as of this recording and the movie the movie date got pushed back just because of COVID issues so it wasn't even really a movie tie-in <laughs> so i think i think the 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 first volume in fact is sold out and getting hard to find and the and the movie's only just coming out now so <laughs> it's like right. it didn't work quite the way they wanted it to as a tie-in right but yeah. I'm sure they're still able to cash in a little bit on the anticipation of the movie, at least. Now, what I like about this Epic collection is that they are collecting all of the appearances of Morbius, not just his ongoing series, which was in the pages of Adventures into Fear. But we get uh, we get issues of Spider Man, we get issues of Marvel Team Up, and a couple of different you know giant size annual issues here and there. Or those weren't annuals actually; they were quarterly. But and then also these random stories from Vampire Tales, which is a magazine, not a comic. And this is kind of something that the Epics have started doing now especially with these lesser known characters that don't have an ongoing series of their own really uh, and their and their origins are kind of scattered to the wind they're collecting it all in one place and we saw this with black widow it was like they took snippets of avengers issues and and tried to compile all of her stories together to give us one complete narrative and they're doing that with Morbius here. And actually, it reads really well as one big narrative. Uh, and you think that jumping around from issue to issue, and sometimes there's like many months in between and gaps and different creators, that it would seem like a haphazard mess, but it doesn't. And I think one of the biggest things is that the, the first several issues in this book are all Roy Thomas and and Jerry Conway, who I feel are kind of in the same boat in terms of writing, uh, especially because they're writing Spider-Man. And then the artist primarily in these early issues is Gil Kane. He does nearly all of these these issues before we get into Adventures into Fear. And I think he even does an Adventures into Fear issue as well. So we have that consistency and it feels natural, like a natural flow. Did you get that feeling as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's actually one of the things that surprised me with this book. Because um after reading the Black Widow epics, that one did feel very disjointed to yeah. me, where <laughs> yeah. you could tell it's just a random story here from the 70s, then jumps to a story here in the 80s. But and that's kind of the expectation I had going into this book. But yeah, when I started reading it, I actually read like one smooth title. If you took the title off all the issues, I wouldn't have known that they were under different series. So yeah, they did a really good job about tying all the stories together mm-hmm. across the different books.
0: Yeah, and keeping track of where Mobius was at in his story as well because like we get to that werewolf one at the very end and you know, it picks up right where the Adventures into Fear issue was and And then Spider-Man also helps being a through line because these early issues were all um, Amazing Spider-Man and Marvel team up, which Spider-Man was the main character. And then an issue of Giant Size Superheroes, which eventually became Giant Size Spider-Man, I'm pretty sure. And so, so Spider-Man being kind of the the, the the consistent through line also really helped because that meant uh, that Spider-Man, like we were watching things through Spider-Man's eyes, basically. And if Spider-Man was remembering things, then we were remembering things as well. So that that really helped. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And I just generally like this period of, of Marvel anyway, because in the 70s, there is There are some changes to the comic code and they were allowed to do more stuff with monsters. And so Marvel really took that. And like, you know, Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, all of those books were becoming very popular. And Morbius is uh, in that vein. And he meets up with a lot of these characters. And I feel like a lot of the writing, especially because a lot of it is Steve Gerber, who was doing Mam Thing, and Doug Mensch, who was doing Werewolf by Night. Like they have that similar horror feel to it in their style of writing and it fits in nice as a compliment to those other monster books
1: no absolutely and there's actually been points where i was reading this and i was actually surprised like oh wow they were actually able to say that in <laughs> yeah. the narrative and I'm like wow that's really kind of pushing the boundaries compared to all the stuff i've been reading in the 60s
0: oh for sure yeah. um
1: but with the art you can definitely see areas where they are kind of abiding to the comics code, especially when you start reading some of the vampire tales, seeing what they're able to display in those books versus the issues we're covering today. Uh, They are pretty drastic. Like One of the things that I noticed is that you never really see Morbius sinking his fangs into anybody's neck <laughs> right any of these
0: issues that's true Yeah. And I think th- that's largely because yeah. of the comics code I think so too so you see the moment just before he punctures the skin and then it cuts to like either the the, the, the victim is falling to the ground or like the, it's a back shot you just see Morbius' back or something like that <laughs> yeah
1: yep. and there's actually I think they really kind of mastered it going, going forward so I think with the first couple issues there's been some scenes where I'm like wait did the person get bit did they not hmm. And I think they kind of ironed that out going forward where they really made sure you knew who got bit and who did not.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I've been reading through Tomb of Dracula as well. And uh, there are a lot more cavalier with the the biting in that one, uh, maybe because that one's specifically more of a mature book in general. But and then these ones are like, you know, pages of Spider-Man, which is still geared to eight year olds and stuff. So they had to be more careful. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, so just before we get into these issues, I want to address some reader comments. A lot of the comments that we that I asked on Facebook, on Twitter, sorry, a lot of the the responses from the question that I asked on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram were just, "Oh, I haven't gotten around to reading this one yet." <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's probably not as high on people's priority list as other epics, but uh, but it's out there if you want to read it. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's see. Sean says, I liked it. The solo stories in Adventure Into Fear were true 70s weirdness. And having seen the <laughs> flashback in Inglehart's Fantastic Four, it was good to read the original stories. Yeah, I'll touch on Fantastic Four in a little while when we get into these issues, because uh, there is some tie in and a little bit of retconning that happens in those issues that affect how we could possibly perceive some of the stuff going on in here. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So James says, I love the Gerber issues. That's the adventure into fear stuff. And they are the most insane comics I've ever read. And they would translate into an amazing 80s low budget horror sci-fi flick. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And it would have grown into a cult following to rival the work of Ed Wood, the Morbius movie we all deserved. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, yeah, and then throw in Blade in there too in his you know nineteen seventies getup. <laughs> that would have been awesome.
1: Oh, yeah, I gotta love it. <laughs>
0: yeah. And then Carson says, "Not a usable comment, but I'm on and off about getting these two Morbius epics. I don't like the character yet, but most of the content seems interesting." Well. Carson, I think that really depends on whether or not you can buy into the 70s weirdness, like like these other people have been saying. If you're a fan of that kind of a Marvel comic, then I think you'd enjoy this one.
1: No, I, I think so too.
0: Will says, this is classic Bronze Age 70s Marvel. They were pumping out so many books. Why not give Morbius a book? Everything was so late. There are four different writers on the Adventures into Fear books, and they were only 12 issues. Is it any good? Does it matter? It doesn't. And it really isn't, at least for the Morbius solo stories. (laughs) Yeah. Four different writers. It's true. And it's kind of interesting how that affects the reading experience and the flow of those issues, because it does jump around kind of quite a bit because of it. Okay, Brad, here's a comment. He says, I haven't got to it yet. He's working on Spider-Man and the death of Captain Stacy and Hulk, who who will judge the Hulk. Uh, I've got one other comment here, and it is on Twitter. This is um, translated from Portuguese. This is Jamerson. He says, boy, the stories in Adventure into Fear are bad and take terrible turns. Besides, a spaceship (laughs) crashes in New York and only Blade notices it. The stories (laughs) in Vampire Tales are better, but not by much. (laughs) So Jamerson did not enjoy the Morbius Epic Collection
1: yeah and i think with regarding the adventure into fear stories i do feel like those were much more kind of bubbled off in this own corner of the marvel universe and doesn't really touch any other aspects and yeah when we get to those issues it'll be kind of interesting to talk about just the impact that those issues would theoretically have on the rest of marvel universe
0: but nobody else noticed yeah (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) uh well I mean, it doesn't it it's it helps that it takes place on a different planet, so there's that too sure yeah, well, actually, maybe not necessarily anyway, yeah, we'll yeah, we'll, we'll get into yeah. that, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Typically, I would ask my co-host, I would say, what are the things we need to know in advance? If someone's picking up the Morbius Epic Collection and having not read anything before this, what are the things that people need to know? But you don't really need to know anything because this is the beginning of Morbius's story. There are some plot points in Spider-Man that you may need to know about, like you open up the the issue here and he's got six arms (laughs) that's kind of weird but they explain that right away and so uh, there's you don't really need to have any foreknowledge um except a general knowledge of who spider-man is i think in order to enjoy this book
1: yeah and i think this is definitely still during the period of marvel where they assume that any comic could be somebody's first comic Mm -hmm. and so they still have those synopses pretty much at the beginning of each issue so
0: oh man yeah (laughs) Once you get into Adventures into Fear, Pretty much every issue has a full page dedicated yep. to the insanity that came before it. <laughs> and it just gets more Absolutely. and more convoluted as you go on. Uh, it got a little uh, tiring reading, that, trying to read through that every single issue. I was like, oh man. But yeah, you're right. So every issue, they're like, okay, whoever doesn't know what's coming before, we got to clue them in. So they have those pages for sure.
1: Yeah, I actually wish I went back and tallied the number of recaps we
0: had about Morbius' story. <laughs> yeah. Because they just never ended. <laughs> Pretty sure it's every single issue. <laughs> My intention for this one, and I'm doing this with the Tomb of Dracula episodes, too, is I'm, we're not going to cover any of the magazine stories, because I'd like to contain those all together, uh, because I think that they're they're worth talking about for sure, but they're so different in tone and in quality than the regular comic issues that I'd like to group them all into an episode of their own. So we are going to talk about vampire tales in another episode. <music> Okay, well, why don't we jump into our issues here? We're going to start at the very beginning of this Epic Collection with uh, Amazing Spider Man issue number 101. This is a very famous issue. It has a very famous cover. In fact, I think this is the cover to the omnibus. Uh, if you got the direct yes, market I believe classic, so. classic cover, yep. And yes. Uh, and this this issue is called A Monster Called Morbius. This being the first appearance of Morbius, Amazing Spider-Man 101. It is uh, written by Roy Thomas, although he calls himself the stand-in scriptor, So I wonder if he, um, I'm sure he did the plot as well. He just likes to credit himself as scriptor, I think. And then Gil Kane is our artist on this one, uh, being inked by Frank Giacoya. And I, I mentioned Frank Giacoya's name because uh, I actually really like his inks on Gil Kane. There's an issue later where Gil is inked by somebody else, and it's not great. And I'll bring that up when we see it. So I think these two make a good combo. I agree for sure. Uh, so in this issue, I'll just give you a brief recap and then we can get into talking about the content here. So Peter has six arms because he's trying to take away his spider spider powers and it goes wrong and makes him even more like a spider. So he needs to hide. So he retreats to Dr. Curtis Connors' summer house on Long Island to try and come up with another cure to cure himself of his six arms. And then in the meantime, Morbius washes ashore because he threw himself off of a boat at sea and he happens to wash ashore right where the summer house is and then, you know, they have a fight. This is the start of our of our tale. We it's not really an origin for Morbius. We kind of get thrown into the middle of his story. He's on a boat but he is already Morbius. And the people on the boat think that he's out to kill everybody on the boat and so they kind of turn on him and throw him overboard. And he washes out to sea. So that's kind of where we're at. He's a mystery character. And I really like that aspect of starting the story, especially because this is a monster type character, a vampire, starting it with a, just an unknown. We don't know anything about Morbius. Is he, is he good? Is he bad? Um, but what we do find out right away is that he actually doesn't want to kill people he he sucks the blood of one of the crewmen and he he regrets it on page 17 of the epic collection his dialogue after he kind of defeats the crewmen he says ha i have triumphed over all of them my thirst is assuaged for another hellish night i live while they are dead and then he says and i only wish that i were they so he throws himself into the sea to try and drown himself So he he doesn't want to kill people. He wishes that he weren't a vampire. He tries to kill himself. So I like that aspect all all right away because that's that's different than any other vampire story that we're getting at Marvel at the time with Tomb of Dracula.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's kind of important that they introduce that early on because it does set him up from being more than just your one-dimensional Spider-Man villain. Um, It gives some sort of underlying complexity to them that you want to learn more about just because that's not what you expect from a vampire to feel guilt.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think this is going to be an interesting ride going forward as well. Like if you haven't read any of these, because then you're like, okay, is he actually a bad guy? Um, He he fights Spider-Man, but is this going to be one of these instances where they're misunderstood and they team up in the end or whatever? But once they get into the fight, um, you can also see he's got some interesting powers. He doesn't seem to trigger Spider-Man's spider sense because Spider-Man gets taken by surprise like five times in this in the, like the three pages that they fight, and uh, either something's off with Spidey, which could be the case or or Morbius just doesn't doesn't trigger his spider sense kind of like Venom
1: yeah no that's interesting I actually didn't notice that um I know at one point the issue I think it mentions that he's been kind of working for two days straight pulling all-nighters doing research so whether that's what throws him off his game or yeah maybe Morbius is just able to go under his radar
0: I love this splash page of Morbius knocking Spider-Man off the balcony. And it's, oh my gosh. It's so good. And it's a, it's kind of just a it's a different version of what we see on the front cover. And they're, those both of those, the cover and the splash page, are great. Just such a dynamic look and the perspective. And uh, I love it. I think it's just Gil Kane's a great artist.
1: Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed the art in these first two issues.
0: Um, but especially in this first issue, I feel like Gil Kane does
1: a really good job about doing a lot of full body panels of spider-man to really show off those six arms oh, yeah. <laughs> and point him in different and point them in different poses because i mean it's i feel like with some artists it could be easy to almost kind of go unnoticed like oh yeah i forgot he has six arms but they really make it known that now he has six arms
0: <laughs> and it's great to to keep them you know flesh colored because uh, of course they just rip through his costume so he, they don't have coverings but they they really stand out because of that and like if you're going to have your character have six arms you got to showcase it <laughs> it's like you got to it i can't even imagine how difficult it is to draw to like make them fit in there and like oh i know <laughs> not not look ridiculous i mean it looks ridiculous of course but not look wrong it looks like it could actually be something that's surreal
1: <laughs> right and one other thing that i really liked um, talking about the six arms is the idea that he has to learn how to swing and fight with six arms. At the beginning of the issue, he's pretty uncoordinated with them and is kind of falling, stumbling around. And that's just an aspect that I wouldn't have immediately thought of, but it's mm-hmm. a pretty realistic thing to introduce for a person to have six arms.
0: Yeah, if you get if you get more limbs, you don't automatically know which, which of your mind thoughts are going to control which of your arms. You kind of have to figure that out. That's That's kind of cool. And just like pure 70s weirdness, like like I think it was James that said that in the comments. So we get at the very end, Kurt Connors comes to the house and transforms into a lizard. So now we have a six-armed Spider-Man, a weird quasi-vampire, and a giant lizard, and they're all going to fight each other. <laughs> it's like, what the heck is this? <sighs> a lot of fun a lot of fun and that's just yeah this is what you love about the 70s the early 70s is kind of a weird time for marvel they're not they're not taking themselves too seriously at all and uh they just have fun with it
1: right no i remember actually getting to this issue when going through spider-man epics and i just remember thinking this is the weirdest issue i've read yet (laughs) and to go through 101 comics to have this one be the weirdest that's it's definitely testament to its weirdness
0: yep definitely but it all seems to still fit. It's like, you know, this is Spider-Man. I, I could I can accept all of these elements. It's just the fact that all of these elements are in one issue together. That's so strange.
1: One thing that I did notice, which I don't know if, if it was intentional or not, but um, on the boat scene with Morbius, I don't know if this is just more the printing or the colors that they use, but he kind of alternates between a white and a pink colored. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's supposed to be more shadowing, but I've kind of noticed that he's more pink when he's has that more human side of him. And then he turns white when he's more in that vampire
0: mode. Oh, okay, so maybe it's like they're trying to give us a subtle, you know, psychological hint at, as to his character there. I can I can see yeah, that. Yeah,
1: maybe. I mean, it's not something that they followed through with, but I just thought that was interesting during the first issue as it might have been a possible route they were planning on taking him.
0: I kind of also think, I'm not sure if they had it settled yet, if he turns white at night and he's like kind of regular color during the day. I'm not sure if that had anything to do with it, but you're right. The whole scene where he's in the lower decks and running away, he's pink colored. Um, And I think that's supposed to be during the day. And then this is on page 16 in the bottom tier. Then the moon comes up and now Morbius is in his costume and he's white. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that's supposed to be. Yeah, definitely something that they don't follow through with even in the next issue
1: yeah that quickly goes away
0: yeah. Okay. Let's uh, go on to number 102.
1: Yeah. So issue 102. So this one is also written by Roy Thomas and drawn by Gil Kane. Um, so this is actually a double-sized issue that wraps up Morbius's first story arc and the 6 arm story arc for Spider-Man. Uh, so in this issue, we have Spider-Man and the lizard actually teaming up in order to track down Morbius in order to extract an enzyme from his blood that could potentially cure both the lizard and Spider-Man's extra arms. One interesting thing during this issue is that when the lizard gets bitten by Morbius, he's actually weakened, and Dr. Connor's mind is able to take control over the lizard's body. Mm-hmm. And throughout the issue, you can kind of see the lizard's personality seeping through, and I absolutely loved that. It was kind of like almost a thriller element to it, where, oh, is he going to turn, is he not? Especially when he's swinging around with Spider-Man across the city while he's holding the lizard. Definitely a very dangerous situation for him.
0: Yeah, Lizard is actually one of my favorite characters. I really like anytime time he appears, and, uh, and, and for just that reason as well. It's like you never know where his mind is at or when he's going to turn into the lizard. And, and so, yeah, to have him in the lizard form but wrestling internally – uh, always creates some great suspense and great drama. Yeah, I agree. I like that element too. And then at, the, at near the, I think is at the end where he turns, his like his face turns back to uh, being human. Oh no, that's uh, that's at the beginning, right? Yeah, I think it's early on where right yeah, yeah, yeah. he's
1: bitten. He kind of goes back to like a half-human, half-lizard form, but then reverts to full lizard form. Yeah, I like the that transformation.
0: I think it would it would have been cool to explore that a little bit. Um, but I mean, the focus was definitely more on the. On Morbius and such but uh, to explore the fact that you know he could be a half human like more human just with like the scales or whatever kind of showing through I like that aspect
1: yeah I do too
0: we find out Morbius's origin in this one yeah and we find out that he had a blood condition that where his blood was deteriorating and that's why he's a Nobel Prize winning scientist so super smart. And he's trying to find a way to cure himself of the fact that his blood is betraying him. And that turns himself into Morbius. Interesting to me that he looks like Morbius even before he turned into Morbius. I always thought that, um, you know, his look with the short nose and stuff like that was a a byproduct of him turning into a vampire. But no, he's actually had that (laughs) before. And they make a note of it too. It's like his girlfriend, Martine, Um, loved him regardless of his looks. I think that's what they said or something like that.
1: Right. And I don't know if it's because of the blood condition. I think it might get referenced or kind of hinted at later that that's why he's a little disfigured. But yeah, he's definitely always had that abnormal appearance.
0: Mm hmm. Uh, This is, uh, his story starts off with tragedy because his his best friend is the guy who's been helping him through all of this with his experiments and such. And and as soon as he turns into Morbius, the first thing he does is suck the blood, uh, or he doesn't even suck the blood of his friend. He strangles his friend um, and and kills him. And so right off the bat, the first thing he does is he's full of regret. And uh, and then he tries to kill himself by drowning again here. Like he did in in the other issue.
1: Yeah, so um, actually, this is one of the things that I mentioned earlier in the podcast that it's kind of ambiguous as to whether he bites people or not, Mm. because Mm -hmm. for the longest time, I thought he strangled um, Nikos, his, his friend, but... In a lyric issue, during one of the flashbacks, it actually says that he did drain his blood. Okay, right. So I thought that was super interesting that he has this urge to feed on people, but yet he strangles his friends. So I don't know if that's retconned later with the flashback or if they just didn't do the best job implying what happened. But
0: I think it's a retcon because it's very, very clearly a strangle here.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. So I don't know much about, you know, the science behind what they're doing here. And, you know, and this is also comic book science. So who knows if it's all made up. But the fact that he's trying to create new blood cells through electrical shock seems uh, I don't know how accurate that is. It seems like it's just like a let's just make up some science here. Um, but I don't know. You're yeah. the med school med school student. <laughs> you tell me. Yeah. So definitely can't
1: explain the electrical shock but um i know he does the um he does inject himself with an enzyme from a vampire bat i believe so i think that is used to maybe stabilize his blood cells because it sounds like they just deteriorate right away. So maybe that's supposed to kind of prolong their life. But yeah, no, I think the electrical shock is definitely the showmanship (laughs) over at Marvel. Yeah,
0: Uh, yeah, and they kind of don't really even reference that ever again. They talk a lot about the enzymes coming up later on, but uh, the electrical shock is something that kind of just falls to the wayside. (laughs) But the one good thing that does cause electrical shock
1: is we find that his insulating suit underneath is actually his
0: costume we right. see for Morbius. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting thing. I was I like how they explained that. But it's like he's got these kind of wings under his arms that he like right. what good is that for his insulation suit? I'm not sure. It just kinda of looks cool. And this huge, huge wide brimmed collar that exposes his <laughs> chest. So that wasn't good for insulating, but It's it's just a (laughs) funny way to to bring up the costume.
1: Right. Yeah, we get a more thorough explanation of his origin. And when he jumps into the sea at the end of this flashback, I'm not sure if that's supposed to mark the beginning of where we found him in the first issue, uh, where he's on just some kind of random boat.
0: Yes, I think it is. yeah. So that's kind
1: of like a neat way to tie in what we saw in the first issue.
0: Yeah, he turns into Morbius and regrets killing his friend and tries to drown himself. And then like, he gets far enough away from his boat and Mar- Martine that uh, he can't go back to it and he just drifts. And then that crew from the first issue finds him, picks him up, and then he kills some of them and then jumps off there and makes his way over to where Spider-Man is. So yeah, they, I think they are kind of one right after the other, but we've got them told in the in the reverse order. Right,
1: that was definitely an interesting one way of telling his origin story and I really like that kind of going out of order like that. Mm-hmm. At the end of the issue, uh Morbius ends up in the river where he is presumed dead, yeah. which in Marvel Comics, if you don't see a body, you can <laughs> safely assume that they are in fact dead and that we'll never see them again.
0: That's right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it. That's all that we have for Morbius.
1: Yep, exactly. Two issue epic.
0: Yep. Well, we carry on to Marvel team up number three, and it actually picks up kind of immediately after the events of the last issue because we get a hand coming up out of the water and oh, look, Morbius is alive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Never
0: saw it coming. So he, he immediately texts the first person he comes across and then we kind of jump a couple of months. And we don't, we don't actually know that we jump a couple of months. It doesn't say that until a little bit later in the issue. But, uh, but Mar- Martine, who has been searching for Mo- Mobius all of this time, reaches out to the Fantastic Four for help. And I'm not exactly sure what the connection is here, but it seems like she knows Reed and Sue from somewhere else.
1: So I think she discovers letters that were written between Morbius and Dr. Richards. Oh yeah, that's right. And that's, that's right. how she yeah, that's how she knew to go to them.
0: So this is Marvel Team Up. So in this in this series Spider-Man teams up with a different hero in every issue. And this is only the 4th the 3rd issue, so the the whole team up aspect I think is still a little bit ambiguous because Spider-Man and Torch don't really team up at all. They kind of just fight. And even when Morbius enters the picture, they they don't really team up either. They're kind of still kind of working independently. It's just uh, that they kind of both exist at the same time. Um, I, I don't actually even know Human Torch's motivations here either. So here's the synopsis. Reed Richards worked with Mo- Morbius and, there, and another guy. And the other guy's name is um, Professor Hans Jorgensen. And Jorgensen may have the cure to Morbius's condition. So uh, Professor Jorgensen happens to be Spider-Man's professor. So all of three of these people converge on Professor Jorgensen all at the same time and have a big battle. Sorry, that was a little convoluted way of explaining that, but that's kind of where we're at. I don't exactly know what why the torch goes after Jorgensen. He because they they're talking about it, and Reed Richards says, "Morbius, good lord, the Nobel Prize winner. He and I corresponded once." And the letters of another man, uh, Professor Jorgensen, he's a teacher at, United, at at State U in Queens. And then Torch is like, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to go find Jorgensen. But like, why are you going to go find Jorgensen? You don't know anything about Morbius. And you don't know, you don't know like what the connection is with Jorgensen, except that they work together or something. Like, I feel like him flying out of the room is just for the sake of the fact that this is going to be a team up between Spider-Man and Torch.
1: Right. I think, yeah, I think the only thing that really connects them is... Um... On page 71, um, he kind of briefly mentions that, oh, talking to Spider-Man, I know that he fought Morbius in the past. So I don't know if he's going there to find Jorgensen or to find Spider-Man, knowing that he
0: goes to school there. But I don't understand uh, why he takes off by himself and goes, because it seems like this is something that maybe Reed Richards would be a better person to go and talk right. to <laughs> Professor Jorgensen. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, and it's just it's a little bit ridiculous. He just like he he's on fire and he flies right into the classroom and disrupts the whole thing, just because it's like hold on, do you know a guy named Morbius? <laughs> like that's it. I'm gonna interrupt your whole class just very casually. Do you know do you know this guy named Morbius? <laughs> yeah so this um this this issue wasn't my favorite because of that like i I can take the the sheer insanity of the adventures into fear issues because they're just so out there, but this one tries to be more on the side of realism and it doesn't pay off because I don't understand torch's motivations, right, yeah, they definitely. You can definitely see the end goal
1: is to have a book starring Spider-Man side by side with the Human Torch. Yeah. And they kind of just stumble their way to that plot point. Yeah. And yeah, it doesn't definitely does not flow as well as you'd hope.
0: And Peter Parker himself is going, I mean, his is just a coincidence meeting up with Professor Jorgensen as well, because he is kind of feeling dizzy and doesn't know what's wrong with him um and he he's feeling out of it so he tries to seek that professor his own professor for help why he doesn't go to a doctor i don't know but he'd rather go <laughs> to his teacher but that's just for the, sake right. of the story as well i guess
1: <laughs> yeah no and i feel like in this issue we do see a good amount of spider-man tropes being used um so i mean like the example you just used the fact that he's getting sick i know that's a trope that we saw a ton of if you read through the early spider-man issues right and also, just another trope is the fact that he's teaming up with the Human Torch, something that's been done a lot in the past. And yeah, I, I'm i not sure if the team up was well placed. Maybe they intentionally did it with the Fantastic Four and the Human Torch just being a more popular character and a better way to kind of introduce Morbius. Because mm-hmm. maybe people would be more likely to buy this issue if they saw Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four on the cover it's probably a good way to introduce Morbius or reintroduce Morbius into the Marvel universe.
0: So Amazing Spider-Man 102 is cover dated November 71. And this one is cover dated July 72. So we have about, you know, seven or eight months uh, in between those two issues. So there is a there was a little bit of time when Morbius was missing here, and we and people haven't seen him. So I think we do need to kind of get everybody up to speed a little bit. So yeah, keeping them in this. I mean, I don't know what their long term plans were for Morbius at this time, because Adventures into Fear, uh, that one, that first issue is cover dated um, February seventy four. So it's still a couple years out. So they probably okay. didn't have any long term plans for Morbius at, at this, this point. point. Yeah, uh, this issue is drawn by Ross Andrew, who is uh, who becomes a very regular a Spider Man artist. But I feel like he's a little raw and unrefined at this point. Um, some, but I mean, he's still he's still good, and I think that he's inked by Frank Giacoya, who was the inker in those other two. Uh, Gil Kane issues that we just talked about. So there is a little bit of a consistency in the look, um, and which is going to be different from the next issue, which is uh, team Marvel Team-Up number four, which is drawn by Gil Kane, but inked by Steve Mitchell. And I had mentioned that I want to talk about the difference in inkers. Well, this one being um, a different inker, I think gives gives Gil Kane a way, way different feel. And I think he's not as strong of an inker. Now, I want you to flip to the very back of this epic collection, to the bonus pages. And when you get to the original art, there is, I think it's the third page of original art. It's Amazing Spider-Man 101. is the final page where we see Spider-Man, and uh, in the middle of a battle between Morbius and the lizard. That splash page, it says, to be concluded at the very, at the bottom. You know which page I'm talking about? Yep, got it. So this is a photo stat, it says, featuring Gil Kane's uninked pencils and Frank Giacoya's in-process inks. So we can see that that Frank has just started to ink these characters. He's basically just kind of got outlines. It hasn't filled in any details in terms of shading and such. But this gives you kind of a look at how much the inker is involved in the look of of this book, because Gil Kane doesn't really add any detail other than the basic shapes of these characters. He just is basically kind of doing the layouts, basically.
1: Yeah, I think inkers definitely go pretty underappreciated. And I think a lot of people, including myself, don't realize how much impact that they have on the actual art and this final product.
0: Yeah, so what's great about the epic collection is you can see this page, and then you can immediately flip back over to the original page and see how much more he's added uh, to, to make it this page dynamic. And it's like, wow, uh, Frank adds a lot to the look of this book. And so when we get Steve Mitchell trying to you know add all of the details that Gil Kane doesn't put in his work, We get a little bit more of a rougher look, uh, rougher a rougher style, and so you can really, really see this in I think in Spider-Man's mask in particular, because I feel like he doesn't get the eye placements right very often um, on on Spider-Man's costume. If you look on page, uh, where's the example I wanted to say here? On page ninety-six, I feel like the eyes on the masks in any of those panels don't really fit where they're supposed to be. Spider-Man doesn't actually show up in costume a whole lot in this issue, but there are some other faces in here that I feel like he's a little off of oh, you. Oh, if you go to page number 92 and look at this one panel with professor X, uh, right in the middle where it's colored red in the background, I'm like, what oh, the yeah. heck? I don't understand. This, this face doesn't, doesn't look like a Gil Kane face. And like his hand is some of the fingers look swollen and lumpy and it's, <laughs> It's not great. So it's little things like that where it's it shows that I think Steve Mitchell's a little bit more of an inexperienced inker or he's just not great.
1: Yeah. No, I definitely agree. It's I could definitely notice it almost kind of shifts the tone of the book to when I'm reading it personally. Yeah. Um, when you have a shift in artist like that, it definitely throws you off as a reader, um, even if you can't always put your finger on it. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, there was definitely a big difference going from the Spider-Man issues 101 and 102 and then going to this issue here.
0: Yeah, even though it's the same penciler. Right. Okay, do you want to take us through the the plot of this one?
1: So in this issue, we have Spider-Man teaming up with the X-Men. It's written by Jerry Conway. And like we said, it is penciled by Gil Kane and the anchor is Stephen Mitchell. Um, So the synopsis for this issue is we find Spider-Man getting sicker compared to the last issue. And we're also reintroduced to Dr. Jorgensen, who ends up getting kidnapped by Morbius. However, Spider-Man ends up getting blamed for it, which is a pretty common trope for (laughs) Spider-Man as well. Um, And the X-Men get involved when Charles Xavier learns of Jorgensen's kidnapping because, uh, kind of like Reed Richards, Charles Xavier also knows Dr. Jorgensen from, either working in the past or writing letters to each other. So Dr. Jorgensen is definitely well connected with the scientists of the superhero community. No kidding. Um, so yeah, Dr. Charles Xavier sends the X-Men to capture Spider-Man. Cause again, they think he is the one responsible for the kidnapping. Uh, Spider-Man ends up being brought back to Westchester where Xavier probes his mind and not only learns that he's innocent, but he learns that there is some sort of toxin in Spider-Man's blood that is responsible for his illness and that he is slowly dying. So Charles Xavier sends the X-Men back out to find Morbius and rescue Dr. Jorgensen, who is the only one that can basically save Peter. Uh, yeah, they have a pretty pretty big tangle with Morbius, and the X-Men are eventually successful in capturing him and rescuing Dr. Jorgensen. And they all go back to Westchester, where they are able to cure Spider-Man. Yeah, right off the bat, there's actually one thing that really jumped out to me during the initial fight scene between the X-Men and Spider-Man is... On page 93, there's actually a billboard that says Doc Savage is coming soon. Right. Yeah. And so I looked it up and I guess the following month was the first issue of the 1972 Doc Savage series. So I thought that was kind of a fun little ad placement that Marvel did.
0: Yeah. <laughs> They didn't often do stuff like that. Like just write it into the comics like that. That's kind of weird. But yeah.
1: Yeah, which is surprising. I actually expect them to do more things like that. It seems uh, as like a little quirk to the book, and seems definitely something that be up their alley.
0: Well, the ways that they usually would do it is like on page ninety one when Professor X is calling all of the students, and he calls Beast, and Beast says, sorry, Professor, I can't come right now. And it says, find out why in Astonishing Tales. Like, that's usually how they would promote their stuff like that. (laughs) Um, And and that one actually, (laughs) this is an interesting period for X-Men, because their book is canceled at this point. And it's actually just in reruns. The the title's still going, but they're not doing any new X-Men stories. They're just reprinting old ones. And uh, Beast is the main character in this new, this new title, Astonishing Tales, and this is where he gets his fur, and so he hasn't got it yet. Right. Uh the all of these X-Men are in their original yellow and blue costumes, but these are not the costumes that they should have at this point because they all got their really. new costumes in the uh in the Jim Sterenko issues which happened just before it was the book was canceled. And that's when, you know, M- Marvel Girl gets the the green dress with the with right. the yellow, you know, pointy yellow mask or whatever, that kind of thing. That, those are the costumes that they should be wearing in this issue, but I wonder if it's because the actual monthly title is doing reprints of old issues where they are all in the yellow and blue, so they decided to put them in the yellow and blue here as well. I'm not sure.
1: Right, because, yeah, I mean, like you said, during this period, it's pretty much just all reprints, but the continuation of their story is really just kind of hopping from book to book going guest starring in other series, which they actually do a pretty well, well done story arc that moves from the different books, but that's mm-hmm. different book for a different time. Yeah. All that's collected in the darkest before the Dawn X-Men at the collection, I believe. That's
0: right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So one thing that was weird to me here is that at the very end, um, well, other than Spider-Man kissing Jean Grey, just kind of randomly, Um, And then jumping out the window and causing all the glass to fall over the place is like, thanks for saving my life. Here's some property damage for you. (laughs) Um, It's just a weird ending. But then also Morbius is just lying there. They leave him. He's left with Professor X to deal with. And we don't, it isn't for a few issues later where they finally were like, oh, we better address how Morbius escapes from the (laughs) X-Men. (laughs) <laughs>
1: right yeah i mean we never really learned what his plan was for morbius yeah uh whether he was able to cure him or yeah we never really learned what the game plan was so we're just kind of left with moving on to the next issue with morbius escape not really knowing exactly what happened for an issue or two
0: yeah exactly so at this point in the epic collection uh, we get Vampire Tales number 1 and I just want to do I do want to mention that it's in here because there's one point of continuity that's that that you need to know from Vampire Tales number 1 is the apparent death of Martine who dies uh, in this one story here and then that's a spoiler alert sorry but <laughs> then we're going to move over to Giant Size Superheroes featuring Spider-Man and I only bring that up because they make a reference in this issue to the death of Mar- Martine uh, but yeah, like we said, Morbius is free and on the loose, and there's there's no mention of how he got away from the X-Men or anything like that. He just seems to be back to his other self. In fact, this is kind of a turning point, I think, for the character as well, because at this in this book, it's when he starts kind of freely uh, sucking on people's blood. We haven't we've we've seen that happening kind of in these past few issues, but he's always been full of regret, and now he's kind of more accepted the fact that he has to do it.
1: Yeah, that's definitely one thing that really stood out to me. Uh, whether it's actually the previous issue in Marvel Team Four or this issue here, is you'll see a little bit of a regression with the character and where they were taking him. Yeah, um, he does kind of get brought back to a more one-dimensional villain where he's just a vampire out there on the hunts and you really like you said you don't see that internal struggle Mm -hmm. so this these two issues definitely felt out of character for him yeah
0: yeah i think we get back on track once we get to adventures into fear but this one is written by jerry conway and drawn by gil kane with inks by mike esposito Jerry Conway is the guy who wrote the last issue as well, right? So um, maybe he just had a different idea of how Morbius should be compared to what Roy Thomas was trying to establish at the beginning. But in this issue, uh, this one features Man Wolf, who is John Jameson, the son of J. Jonah Jameson. He's an an astronaut. And man, he's got a bizarre story too. (laughs) Going into space, he has turned into a werewolf. He goes into space and gets a magical necklace that allows him to control his savage side. And he has to wear this yellow suit that helps protect him from going full wolf or something like that. I don't know. It's just a it's weird. He's got a bizarre story. And so we have these two bizarre characters who are meeting up. And this is kind of like the first meeting of the two monster characters for Morbius. So this is the, you know, the Dracula analog versus the the werewolf analog and they're going to uh, fight each other. And really this this was a weird issue because it's it's huge, it's a giant size, but not a whole lot happens. Uh, because it's kind of just Spider-Man following Morbius and Man-Wolf over and over again. Like, he follows them. They have a little fight. They get away. He follows them again. They have a little fight. They get away. And it just kind of keeps doing that throughout this entire issue. Uh, we we meet Jorgensen once again. And they finally kind of resolve the enzyme. Oh, no. This is different, different professor this time, right?
1: Yeah. I think. Yeah. I had to triple check when I was reading it. But it is a different professor. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah professor Ward. Because Professor Ward is going to have um, something to do with the, the enzyme that Morbius needs. The, 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 more, the enzyme that has been extracted from him uh, in the other issue from the X-Men is now uh, causing him to, to slowly die or something like that. And so he needs that enzyme back in him. So he goes to w- Professor Ward to get it back. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I
1: think one thing that we actually saw in one of the Spider-Man issues is when they initially took the enzyme and kind of unhinged him mentally and he kind of went on a rampage. But um, yeah, so I think that's definitely the theme of this book is him trying to get the enzyme back. One thing that I did notice during this issue, and again, I think it's largely due to Jerry Conway's take on Morbius, but I thought he was much more cruel than he usually is, um, just with the way he tries to control man wolf and basically takes this takes uh jameson and who's been largely cured of his affliction and reunites him with the stone to turn him back into the werewolf so that he can use him for his own means i'm just like wow that's again very out of character and very pretty cruel for morbius to put an innocent person back into this type of situation
0: yeah especially considering that morbius doesn't like the condition that he himself is in like why would he wish that on anybody else so it it is, it's, it's quite different, a different take. But I think at this point, he's also more desperate. And remember, this is over a period of like, uh, I, I mean, in comic book times, it's probably several months or something like that, but which is actually what it was in real time as well. So I think at this point, he's giving in, there's been enough time that he's giving into his bloodlust. And, you know, he's getting desperate to to get some help. So he's doing things that he normally wouldn't do. So, I mean, that's just me kind of writing in an explanation for the change in his character. But <laughs> you could see it that yeah, way, Yeah, no, I no
1: that, that makes sense. Yeah, one other thing that I didn't notice during this issue, which was actually first brought up in the Marvel team up issue three is the idea that Morbius can actually control people after he fights mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Um, this isn't a theme that gets brought up too much in this epic, but either in the vampire tales in this epic or in the next epic, that becomes a more consistent theme of him buying people and be able to control them or turn them into vampires.
0: So it's very ambiguous as to what exactly Morbius can do. And this is just a fact of the, you know, the, because there are so many different writers tackling Morbius in these stories. They each have their own take. But Morbius isn't a vampire. They they call him a living vampire, but he was not created by another vampire. So he's not a true vampire, right? Because that's, that's the mythology of the vampire characters is you become a vampire when another one bites you. But since no one bit Morbius, he's not actually actually a vampire so he never turns into a bat he doesn't have to sleep during the day they, they talk about how the sun weakens him like he gets his sun allergy or something like that but <laughs> yeah. but he doesn't turn he's not going to turn to dust and there's one issue later on uh, the blade issue where he comes into contact with a cross and that doesn't affect him so like there are a lot of things where uh, he is he's not really a vampire and so the fact that he is controlling somebody is is a little weird uh and something that you know doesn't really happen at all after this in this book at least
1: right yeah and like you said the idea that he's more of a vampire made from science uh definitely gets explored a little more as we go on and like you said in the blade issue there's they draw a lot of stark contrast between your traditional vampire and this vampire science that morbius is and that's Mm -hmm. actually my favorite issue so we'll talk more about when we get there but yeah it's definitely an interesting interesting to see how they play with the idea of what can he do what can he not do how is he different from dracula and just seeing how they kind of navigate that early on
0: yeah Another thing, I can't remember if they talk about it here or if it's later on, but Morbius has hollow bones. That's another effect of of the, the bat enzyme or whatever he has hollow bones. So he's really, really light, which allows him to fly. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing. That's right. like He's light enough that he can fly now, but they bring that up later on kind of over and over again that he has hollow bones. So that's an interesting addition to his power set. Yeah,
1: no, I think that was between that and the pale skin. I think those are the two big things that they really emphasize from the get-go from his origin is that he has light bones and he's pale. <laughs>
0: Right. Oh yeah. Okay. I didn't. I couldn't remember if they had mentioned that right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. This this issue wasn't my favorite. It was nice to see the team up between uh, Morbius and, and Man Wolf, if you can call it a team up. But other than that, it was. It, I, I was happy that we could move on to some different directions. Yeah, I
1: completely agree, and I think I was definitely getting a little fatigued when I got to this point in the epic, and worried that it was going to continue on in this direction. <laughs> yeah. So
0: luckily, it did not. <laughs> Well, let's see where it goes now in Adventure into Fear number 20. Yes. I'm not sure
1: which was published first, The Vampire Tales or The Adventure into Fear, but this is where Morbius actually helms his very first uh, series on his own, where he's the main character. Uh, This first issue was written by Mike Friedrich, and the penciler was Paul Galussi, and the inker is Jack Abel. So in this issue, we find out that Morbius is now out in LA and we once again see him kind of being haunted by the memories of his past which is a recurring theme of them explaining his origin over and over is him being haunted by the nightmares of what he's done and the lives of the victims he's taken and during this uh, kind of nightmarish state Morbius is found by uh, two people Uh, the first person is Rabbi Krauss and then the second one is Reverend Damon who have a background in science and offer to help Morbius with his affliction and try to cure him Uh, so when they take him take morbius to their lab he eventually becomes bloodthirsty and ends up attacking them but uh one little plot twist in this story is that reverend Damon is able to actually control morbius's mind and reveals that he is actually a demon priest who plans to take over the world so we <laughs> already kind of start to see the uh the direction that the Stark difference in the direction that the morbius comics start to take yeah and yeah so damon plans to use morbius as a way to eliminate uh anybody who opposes him so morbius is sent out on a mission to eliminate damon's first target which at the very last panel ends up being a small innocent child
0: Mm -hmm. so i have to say that i loved this issue uh, right off the bat, now f- there's a few things here. Paul, Paul Galacy is a weird artist, and he's the primary artist for the first third of the Master of Kung Fu issues, where in which he's a, a lot better than this. I think he, he I think he really refines his his skill. He, it's a little raw, and there are some weird, weird, weird anatomy issues uh, that he, <laughs> that that Paul Galacy will do in in this like. On page 152, the, the the one scene where Morbius is... Uh, the one panel where Morbius is has his hands on either of the wall, the, the foreshortening on the, those arms is just not accurate. And like, yeah. how are you in an alley that's so skinny that you could put your palms <laughs> on both sides of the walls? Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, there, there are just some weird, weird things like the body's twisting in odd directions and such. But he... I don't know. For some reason, I can overlook a lot of this stuff because it adds such a sense of dynamics that is really, really engaging, I find, even though it's weird drawings. So different than the Gil Kane stuff that came before. And it adds such a different feel to this book. Uh, And I love his storytelling. And I love this page on 153, where he jumps out of the alley at this woman and you know, there's the one panel of her screaming and it's all in orange and yellow. And then we get a small panel of his fangs and a small panel of her eyes in red and a small panel of her hand falling to the ground. It's like, that's such a 1970s cinematic (laughs) look to it. It's like, um, you could who who's uh, who's the director of Rosemary's baby? Like that was, oh um, Roman Polanski. You, you could see Roman Polanski doing those kind of shots in in rosemary's baby that kind of thing like it's it's i think it's really great
1: yeah i was gonna make the exact same comment that when i read through those panels it's as if i was watching a morbius movie from the 70s yeah like, absolutely just the, you can just imagine the filters being used on the camera and honestly i loved it
0: i i loved it too i thought it was so good and it's, i i also love the, the interaction between morbius and you know the rabbi who wants to help him and it's just so bizarre that the, the <laughs> when when damon rips off his cloak and is like i'm not a <laughs> jewish rabbi at all i'm actually a, a demon sorcerer <laughs> <laughs> like what i actually thought that this was um that it was going to be son of satan um Dam- Damien oh. hellstrom because he has kind of similar oh, I didn't coloring make that connection uh, right but, he does and i thought they were going to reveal that at some point because it's like the same you know demonology and and everything like that i thought it was totally son of satan but it ended up not being
1: <laughs> yeah no, i could definitely see how you could see it going in that direction yeah Um, One interesting thing that I noticed in this issue, actually, at the very beginning, where Morbius attacks, the going back to the scene we were talking about, where he attacks the woman in the alley, is I think this is the first time we see Morbius actually taking just enough blood to satisfy his thirst from a victim, but to keep them, but keeping them alive. Ah. And I think that's a kind of a big stride in his character developments. Just with, obviously, he's very conflicted between this urge to hunt and and wanting to preserve life. Yeah. And yeah, it's definitely a theme that gets explored more as we go on. But I thought that was interesting seeing that here.
0: This issue also has the explanation on page 156 of how Morbius escapes from the X-Men. Yes. Uh, so that's nice to see because we, we just had that uh, giant size issue where he was just gone. He was just free and we didn't know how. So now we get some explanation. I mean, not much of an explanation. He just snapped out of his bonds and flew out the window. <laughs> but at least it was there right and then also the reference to vampire tales number one is in this issue here
1: yeah that is very helpful because again i would not have known martine was supposedly dead at the time if it weren't for that recap so yeah definitely paid off in this situation having that millionth recap
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay you ready to go on to the next one yeah okay adventure into fear number 21 this one's called project second genesis written by steve gerber and and uh, drawn by Gil Kane with Vince Coletta doing the inks. We have a brand new team. So, you know, the, the team of Friedrich and Glace didn't even last more than one issue. And we had to change right. change writers and stuff. So, who knows what the plan actually was. If Mike Friedrich gave notes over to Steve Gerber and said, hey, this is the direction I want to go. Or if Steve Gerber just kind of took it in his own direction. I feel like Gerber took it in his own direction because... Based on the stuff that I've read, like Defenders and stuff like that of Steve Gerber, this whole stuff with the caretakers seems kind of right up his alley. Whereas Friedrich is more of the Ghost writers uh, writer kind of story. So I think, uh, I think maybe <laughs> Gerber had a big influence on where this is going now. Because this is where it starts to get just absolutely nuts. Because the last issue right. was very much a street-level vampire horror story. And now, all of a sudden, we meet this little girl who can pull a version of, her, of herself out of the future—a twenty-year-old version of herself out of the future—and <laughs> then they fight. She's got like some telekinetic powers or something like that. And then Morbius is taken into this building of the these beings called the caretakers, who are growing superhumans in jars. And their plan—this is the fun. This is the fun part here. Their plan is to have superhumans walking amongst regular people and influencing the world events so that humans don't kill themselves. <laughs> basically so this is to save humanity. And it's like, what? And so why is uh, Damon? why is Damon trying to kill the little girl? what what's what is the goal there? How is he saving the planet by killing her? We don't know. and they don't really give us an answer to that at all, kind of until the very, very last issue. Uh, in this epic collection but yeah i mean they, they meet back up with damon and we find out that martine is not dead but she is uh working with damon she, she, she is under damon's mind control or something and then also there's this demon cat that, <laughs> that, that gets that like what the heck there's just so much going on in this one issue and it's only like 14 pages 14 or 15 pages long because marvel was doing shorter issues in this period of time so they cram a lot into here, and it just is yeah, it goes it's, in so many different directions. We have the sci-fi aspect of the caretakers growing humans. We have the fantasy aspect of this cat creature. We have the horror aspect of the demonologist, and like it's all crammed into one. It's so weird. And the thing
1: is, for me, it worked. I
0: I enjoyed the issue a lot. Yeah. And.
1: It, strangely enough, does not, like, none of it felt out of place. Like, looking back at this issue, there's no one spot where I'm just like, oh, wait, why'd they do that? It's just, I was able to just roll with all of it, and Steve Gerber made it work.
0: Right. And it's just going to get more loony as we go on, that's for sure. Um, Some weird things here. uh, Let's talk about this girl, Tara, for a little while. Uh, She she is, like, 10 years old or something like that, Mm -hmm. and she can pull a version of herself from the future if at first we think she's a pro- it's a projection but morbius bites the neck of the the adult version of terra and then the girl collapses and we see that she has bite marks on her neck. So whatever happens to her in the future, I guess, or to her future self affects her younger self. And uh, we're not exactly sure. It's kind of a weird, a weird power that she has, that they that she can have two yeah. versions of herself existing in the same reality at the same time.
1: Yeah, no. And honestly, as we move through these issues, I don't know if I ever fully understood the connection. But um, just knowing that if you hurt one, you hurt the other.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. Kind of what it boils down to. Um, the return to Gil Kane is nice. However, coming off of the Paul Galassi episode, Gil Kane is so reserved. He is such a a, a a kind of standard comic book artist, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But after getting a treat of something just a little bit more out there and... Um, and and stylized it's like oh okay we're jumping back now feels like we're regressing a little bit
1: yeah i definitely felt that too and i think this is the only issue that gil Kane actually pencils in this in the adventure into fear
0: yeah i think so
1: and i think i kind of noticed that going forward once we move on to another artist uh we kind of get more of that stylized art back
0: yeah yeah we'll see that come especially with frank when frank robbins comes in
1: Yeah, uh, one thing that I did notice in this issue is when he is fighting the adult version of Terra is we actually do see him biting into her neck. So I don't know if it's because with this being outside of the Spider-Man issues now, they can take more chances with having a more graphic scene, but...
0: I, I know feel, that's like yeah. one thing
1: that they always danced around was not showing the actual bite. Well, I,
0: I think that because they had established this book as a horror book, like Adventure into Fear, all of the issues that came before right. the Morbius stuff, with even with Man Thing and stuff, were definitely geared at a at a at an older audience. And uh, and I right. don't know, maybe this book only went to the direct market at the time. I'm not sure, or like you could get it in a very limited way. But uh, but yeah, you're right. There's definitely more of a it's slightly more mature content in these issues
1: yeah and another thing in this issue that kind of made me wonder where this book fits into the overall marvel comic book universe is how the caretakers have kind of been around for thousands of years and have been there alongside humanity kind of guiding them showing them i think the example is like they showed them fire or something like that and really kind of guiding the human race forward Obviously, Marvel has a very complex human origin story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and just with how much it has been tampered with, given like the Kree experiments within humans and the Eternals coming in, it's a definitely a big mess. But so I wonder if this is actually firmly established in the Marvel Universe lore, or if this is just kind of assumed to be, in a way, non-canon.
0: Well, it's funny you should mention that. In the Fantastic Four, in, in Steve Englehart's run, the they bring back all of these characters for one story arc, they bring back the caretakers, they bring back the, uh, the oh. land within and they bring back Arcturus, like the Fantastic Four kind of visit all of these places uh, in one story arc. And they there's one point where they kind of put all the pieces together. And the caretakers did have run ins with celestials in the past. And in fact, they are the ones who... Um, oh, let me see here. I just got to make sure I get this right. Because it was a very convoluted story <laughs> in Fantastic Four. Um, I went through it in one of the podcast episodes uh, that we did for the epic collection called The More Things Change. <laughs> just trying to okay. make sense <laughs> of the that whole, that whole story was quite wild. Uh, okay, so the caretakers were colonizers way, way back thousands, millions and millions of years ago. And... They are actually the ones who created a giant heating device under the Savage Land. And that's what keeps the Savage Land warm, even though they're in Antarctica. Huh. Uh, and yeah, they drew, they fought, the, they fought the deviants in 10,000 BC, and they nuked Lemuria. No, the, so, sorry, in the, in the conflict, Celestials nuked Lemuria, which is told in the pages of e- Eternals number two, the Jack Kirby series. And that's what mm-hmm. sunk Atlantis, and that's what kind of kickstart kickstarted a modern age or whatever. Um, but yeah, so they they have been placed kind of in the continuity of of the Marvel universe. <laughs> it's in a very convoluted gotcha. way, but uh, yeah. And so they they also there's a there's a mini miniseries called The Comet Man about a, okay. a a group of four astronauts, and the Steve Englehart Fantastic Four run here. The story ties Comet Man, that miniseries, into this whole thing saying that he is actually one of the, the, uh, uh of these Comet Men people that the caretakers are talking about because they were on a ship called the Comet. And these superhumans that they're making are called the, uh, what do they call them? Uh, the Sons of the Comet?
1: I think so. Yeah, Sons of the Comet.
0: And so they uh yeah he 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 ties all of that into that Comet Man mini series and and uh <laughs> Steve Englehart wow. loves to play with a continuity and like connect all of these loose ends but anyway yeah so that happened you know 10 years down the road in the mid 80s Oh now I
1: can you move on to the Fantastic Four and that mini series <laughs> <laughs> Yeah you will <laughs> I had my mind blown
0: Uh oh yeah well yeah and it ties into the Beyonder as well so you know the creation of the Beyonder it goes into some weird places Oh gotcha Yeah Okay, well, you ready to move on to the next issue? Yeah. All right. So this is issue 22,
1: which is titled This Vampire Must Die. We have Steve Gerber still as the writer, and for the pencil we have Rich Buckler, and inking is Luis Dominguez.
0: Yeah, so it's and- not. he's not just an inker, but he is... Because uh, Rich Buckler is just doing oh, the yeah. layouts, it says. So that means that Luis has more of an actual role in the look. It's I think it's even more than what we saw with the, the the drawings of Gil Kane. Rich Buckler was probably just doing bare minimum, like placing the panels in the right spots and placing the figures on the page with pretty much no detail. And then Luis uh, Louise Dominguez gets to fill it all in. Um, Dominguez is an Argentinian artist and, uh, he did a lot of work with Marvel in the 60s on, uh, in the 50s and 60s on their horror books. So he's very accustomed to doing this kind of, uh, Horror creatures, kind of a kind of work, and he has a very cool style. It's it's very feathery, I guess, in the terms of uh, how he portrays musculature and all of the fur on these cat people. I like his style a lot. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. Now that you point that out, it's definitely a lot more apparent.
0: Yeah, and I think that comes from just his Argentinian background uh, and art art background, whatever that means, because it's it, it's <laughs> not the same as how an American artist would typically do uh, any sort of inking like this.
1: Right. It's definitely very distinct Mm because I definitely have not seen this style done before, not even though I could have missed it easily, but Mm -hmm. you know, I like it. Yeah a lot. Yeah, I think so too. I like it too. So in this issue, um again, we kind of talked about the uh demon cat named Balkatar, who was summoned by Damon to capture Morbius. And the Balkatar is kind of like an anthropomorphic cat yeah and so when he's chasing morbius he does eventually capture him however out of nowhere a voice comes and tells Balkatar to disregard damon's orders and the summons and take morbius to the land within which is some sort of extra dimensional (laughs) place (laughs) yeah not really sure if it's a planet i don't think it's a planet i think it's more of a we kind of learned that's more of a prison but It's inhabited by all these other demon cats like Balqatar, and Morbius later learns that he is brought to this place to be a force that will indiscriminately kill among the population, (laughs) because in this in this land um, they are the the demon cats are basically evolving and becoming more proficient in sciences and learning how to uh, cure diseases and they're becoming overpopulated and not wanting to um, basically eliminate, eliminate some of the population themselves. They decide to bring Morbius in who will just kind of randomly feed on them and keep the, the population under control
0: oh boy and yeah (laughs) so funny
1: and obviously we see the internal struggle with morbius all the time not wanting to actually harm people this idea is not something he's really on board for so he ends up escaping from the palace and is hunted down captured and ultimately thrown into a into the river of oblivion which flows into this stone wall that is kind of made up of energy because things just kind of pass through the stone it's not actually going up against the stone it's a very strange picture <laughs> that's <Yeah. is> drawn
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man so yeah we, so wa- we
1: once again see steve gerber really escalating the sci-fi of this just giving the The demon cats, the story behind them about how they were ordinary cats that were then conjured to become more anthropomorphized, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, by a sorcerer, and then they are later put in this prison that is the land within, and it's just very on track with being very out there in sci-fi.
0: And at this point, reading the the story, I'm like, okay, are we just forgetting completely about Damon and the (laughs) caretakers? Like, we're off on a completely different trajectory now, like, it's... I, right. I, it's, it's a it's a 180 degree change of pace. And like, where where is this story going? I have no idea.
1: Yeah. Reaching this part of the book was I don't want to say concerning, but I'm like, OK, is this just going to be kind of just spinning off in just completely different directions, kind of losing track of what was initially established with um, the previous writer Friedrich? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see where Gribber is going with this. And I was very grateful when it does eventually tie back into the original plot. But yes, yeah. it was definitely a very big side quest for Morbius.
0: It wasn't until the next issue where I'm like, OK, so I see what's happening here. Morbius is just being thrown into from different location to different location in an, like an Alice in Wonderland kind of a situation and we're just right. going to we're just going to meet different people in different worlds in each of these issues and eventually hopefully it'll come all around together but we're just going to go along for the ride yeah absolutely yeah so the land within is definitely a prison that's created by the caretakers in, because these, um, I don't know if it's established in this. I can't remember if it's this issue that the, these cat creatures are failed experiments of the this sorcerer Ebrok and the sorcerer. Um, the sorcerer is a bu- is part of a collective of sorcerers, and when they realize what e- Ebrok is doing, they they stop him and then they banish all of these cat creatures to this, yeah, this prison that they've created called The Land Within. And then The Land Within comes back two more times, both in Steve Englehart comics, once in West Coast Avengers number six, and then again in those Fantastic Four issues I was talking about before, issues 314 and 315. And they establish that The Land Within is actually underground. It's an underground race of cat people. Okay, so it is on Earth, but you can only get to it through teleportation, uh, which is why the that's how you get that's how Morbius gets out of here is he goes through some sort of teleporter or something. In What If number thirty five, there's a backup story that goes into more detail about Ebrock, and it's not a it's not a What If story. It's an actual like tale of this these these cat people. <laughs> and we we get to know a little bit more about Ebroch. and um, after Morbius leaves it lets us know that after Morbius leaves cuz Morbius is brought there to get the population under control but he refuses to do it and he you know he goes through the the waters and the teleporter and so the, we never find out if the population ever gets under control but in this issue of what if we find out that two of the cat people kind of i think it's two, the two original cat people managed to get their way back to Ebrok and together they create a gas they call the Black Death that eventually goes through the town or this this whole city and takes care of their population problem. People, the cat people, start dying. So the problem eventually is solved. And then it also lets us know that those two cat people eventually are the ones who saved Tigra's life and turn her into Tigra, the cat person. Wow,
1: <laughs> I did not realize there was so much backup and. Honestly, I think, just as a reader, this is what made me fall in love with Marvel Comics, is this race of cat people in a Morbius issue (laughs) (laughs) that's expanded upon what, like, a decade later in some other... And like, what if, and just how connected everything is in the Marvel universe is just so mind blowing. And I think that's why I love reading epics and just this era of comics. Cause you get so much of that interconnectedness. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: That just <laughs> hearing about wild. that. I'm,
1: I know i want to read all the stories.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, you'll go through it and then you'll just get these little snippets. Cause it's like, it's a random story and what if it has no, no connection to anything else in any of those issues, but they just kind of threw it in there. That story is also drawn by Steve Ditko, which is kind of cool. Oh, cool. And then, yeah, Tigra is a member of West Coast Avengers. And because of that What If issue tying her origin story together, Steve Englehart brings her back to the cat people to have an adventure. Uh, and to learn more about her past or whatever. So, it's, yeah, they, they do a really cool job. And it's just this one issue of Morbius. Like, Morbius doesn't right. get to interact with these cat people ever again. But they've managed <laughs> right. to keep that, that little race of beings alive. <laughs> it's pretty wild. So let's move on to Adventure into Fear number 23. This one's called Alone Against Arcturus. And uh, written by Steve Gerber. And this time we have art from Craig Russell. Craig Russell, I think Craig, is it Craig P. Russell or P. Craig Russell? I can't remember what he goes by usually. Uh, P.
1: Craig Russell. Yeah, yeah, P.
0: Craig Russell. He does a lot of stuff that's more along the fantasy lines. And so in the splash page, when I see like a guy that kind of looks like a barbarian, I'm like, okay, I see why they got Craig Russell. But then really, that's just the first couple of pages and we don't get to see the barbarians really at all for the rest of this issue. but I really like the look that he gives Morbius. He gives him more of a a little bit more of a disfigured look um, and and they play with like the the folds of his skin on his face. I like the direction he takes them. But okay so this issue is about what happens to Morbius after he goes through the portal at the edge of infinity or whatever it was called and he finds himself on another planet like this one actually is another planet somewhere far in another galaxy called Arcturus and this is a planet where the caretakers have stashed all of their other all of their failed experiments and uh all of these people, the caretakers have given them a death wish. They have no will to live. So they, they you know, they'll put themselves in harm's way, but they can't actually bring themselves to, ki- to killing themselves or each other. They just kind of exist and they just want to die. It's kind of... Very depressing and upsetting, <laughs> but that's this whole yeah. race of alien beings. Uh, none of them look the same. They're all completely unique and they're all made by the caretakers. And so, just like in the other one, this one guy, his name is I, because he has a giant eyeball for a head. I <laughs> want Morbius to kill all of them. So this seems to be a very, very common theme now for Morbius in all of these books is Morbius finds himself in situations where he is told to kill people. Uh, and it started with Damon mind-controlling Morbius to, to kill the little girl. And now it's like now he has to decide if he's going to kill races of beings. So that's a very interesting predicament, like a morality thing that that Morbius is constantly placed in because it's something he struggles with himself anyway because of his own natural desire to want to suck the blood out of people.
1: Right. Yeah. No, he's definitely kind of put into a, a crisis of morality, like you said, especially, I mean, even before going into the land within, just how Damon is instruct, like you said, Damon instructs him to go kill the little girl. But. At the same time, you have the caretakers who are instructing him to go kill Damon. Yeah. And both sides are claiming to want to preserve life. Yes. That is their goal. Yet this struggle of the means involves killing is just, it doesn't make sense to Morbius. And it shouldn't make sense because it doesn't.
0: No, no. And and this doesn't make sense either. It's like the the caretakers, they don't. Uh, they don't care about these rejects, but they care enough about them that they aren't going to kill them, even though they've taken away their ability to want to live. Like, what? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> just doesn't make sense. It's so strange that they even exist, but here we are <laughs> on this planet in another yeah, galaxy. Yeah, and
1: they did give, I can't remember what it was, but they did give a kind of a strange explanation as to why they couldn't go kill Damon themselves and why they need Morbius to do it. So... I don't know if there is something that just prevents them from being able to kill others, including these rejects.
0: Yeah, maybe, yeah. There's this other side story. There's also a race on this planet of barbarian androids, and they have been developed by some of the the rejects who, who I don't know, tried to rise up against the caretakers, and now they've created these aliens. <laughs> it's so strange. But so, like, the, the barbarian at the very beginning of this... This episode of this issue, Morbius sucks the blood of the barbarian, but it tastes terrible because it's a synthetic blood. It's a uh, it's not pure natural blood, so it's like this is disgusting.
1: Yeah, no, I mean it's definitely you kind of see an element of fantasy meeting sci-fi there. One thing that I did actually notice during that scene, though, is. After he takes the whatever blood is inside the android, he actually seems to be satisfied for a second. But as soon as he learns that it's not real blood, that urge immediately comes back. Hmm. So I almost noticed that there's like a psychological component to it, too, where even though he should have he should have never been satisfied from the fake blood. He did seem satisfied for a little bit until he learned that wasn't real.
0: Right. Yeah. So this is the first issue, I think, that we get a really, really big recap page on page 202 Uh, it's actually just half of the page but there's enough content in there that they need to fully explain how Morbius got to the place where he is right now starting with the caretakers going through uh, the cat people and then bringing us to here so this is the start I think every issue after this has a page like this that recaps everything that happened before
1: Hmm. Yeah, and I'm actually not going to lie, I feel like once these recaps started, I shouldn't mind them too much just because with how convoluted the <laughs> yeah. story was becoming, it's yeah. actually kind of nice to have these recaps because reading the recaps, I realized I've missed things in the previous issue just because right. it was so convoluted and out there. So at this point, I actually enjoyed the recaps because it helped me know what was going on.
0: Well, and there were a couple of points in the recaps when I think they use them to act actually either retcon a few things or better clarify what they meant to do in the issue before. <laughs> so so right. I, I think that's why you you read them and found you missed stuff, because they actually were putting a little bit of new content in there to, to help smooth out some of the inconsistencies that are in here.
1: Right. And I actually think it was from the recap from the... Um first first Morbius issue in the Adventure to Fear is when it's said that he actually drank the blood of Nikos, retconning right. the whole strangling situation. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're completely right. They do use this as an opportunity to kind of fine tune what has happened previously.
0: Yeah. Okay, so we continue on to issue number 24.
1: Yeah, so this is the Return to Terror and this is probably my favorite issue of the epic I really enjoyed this one um, it's once again written by Steve Gerber uh, and P Craig Russell is the artist and Jack Abel is the anchor. And this is where we're introduced to blade or where he gets tied into the story. So in this issue, uh, we see Morbius and the alien named I escaping the planet Arcturus on a rocket that the barbarians worship as a God. So they had to kind of fight their way to this rocket. And not surprisingly, when they left Arcturus to go back to earth i does not make it back i mean being in a confined sp- confined space with morbius for an extended <laughs> yeah. space travel he ha- did not have a chance
0: yep no no chance at all
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah no poor guy and this i think actually one of the comments we had you know on twitter or facebook this is where blade and only blade notice this giant rocket crashing on earth And Blade goes to investigate it, and he discovers Ai's body and sees that he has fang marks on the neck. And this, I loved the fact that he said this he's going crazy because this would mean that there are space vampires (laughs) which is just only Steve Gerber could bring us to the point where there are space vampires
0: (laughs) yeah uh, it's so funny
1: and yeah no so in this issue Blade and Morbius just have in my opinion some of the most fun interactions and really kind of tackle what it how Morbius is different from your traditional vampire Mm -hmm. how Morbius is made from science and as they kind of fight throughout this issue you blade is like obviously they banter as they fight and blade talks about how he's killed many vampires in the past and morbius is saying they're thinking oh man this guy needs help he believes that there's actual vampires out there (laughs) so not even morbius believes in vampires he thinks he's the only one and that he came from science
0: and blade's like there are space vampires
1: (laughs) right yeah exactly And just the tricks that you see Blade trying to use to capture Morbius or take him out, like kind of what we touched on early in this episode about how he pins Morbius down on the roof of a church and forces him to look at the cross and is saying they're waiting for Morbius to burst into flames and Morbius is just kind of saying there, nothing's happening, he just knocks him off. But yeah, I don't know, it's just a like kind of a more comedic way of how they interacted and how they drew on the idea that Morbius is not your typical vampire.
0: Um, I, I enjoyed this issue too. I think that it really should have been two issues uh, because they yeah. look at the amount of panels that are on page 216 and 217. If they had actually devoted one panel, uh, one whole issue to the escape from Arcturus and battling these barbarians, I think that would have been really, really great. Uh, But instead, they cram it into, you know, let's see, how many pages are this? One, two, three, four, five. There's four, there's five pages of them escaping, and then we have one full page of a text recap. And then we have the Blade story, which also, like, if you go to page 224 and 225, there are also like uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. There are 14 p- panels on page 224. Like, yeah. we sh- really should have had a full <laughs> issue devoted just to this Blade story instead of trying to cram it into uh, half of an issue of a already short uh, comic. <laughs> like, really. I would have liked to see these expanded.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. And that's honestly the impression I kind of get for the remainder of the adventure into fear issues is I don't know if at this point they were given a deadline of you need to wrap it up in a couple issues because things definitely seem to speed up. And that's one thing, especially with the last issue in this series that I had issues with, with just how much they crammed in and how quickly everything,
0: everything was resolved. Unraveled. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: Um, I also found, I I also thought that Blade was a little bit of a bumbler in this issue. Like you, I've been reading his adventures, his early adventures in Tomb of Dracula. So that's kind of what you have to compare Blade to because, you know, modern Blade is so incredibly different than this Blade. But Blade is more effective, like he's more of a strategist and has some good ideas in Tomb of Dracula, but here he just kind of, he doesn't really have a plan and comes off very ineffective. And I mean, I guess that's the point because Morbius isn't a typical vampire and, you know, maybe Blade is taken aback by the fact that a spaceship landed in the middle of New York, but... Uh, <laughs> But I would have liked to see Blade holding his own a little bit more. That might have also come if they had given a full I- a full issue to the story rather than just half an issue.
1: Right. Yeah, no, this is actually my one and only exposure to Blade. Oh. So I have, yeah, I have absolutely no context for his character. So Okay. that's interesting that well, you bring that up because this is what I assume Blade was kind of like a, <laughs> not hot headed, but um, almost kind of like a Clint Barton just kind of ready to go in and take action type of person he
0: is like that in tomb of dracula as well but i think i feel like he's just better equipped in those issues if you are going through the 70s then you definitely need to make sure that you put tomb of dracula on your list of things to go through because uh that the book is just excellent and if you liked blade in this one then i think you'll really like blade in those stories as well
1: yeah that's actually tomb of dracula is on my list for this upcoming halloween great great that will be coming in october perfect Actually one other thing. So this is actually the issue where I noticed Marvel kind of push more the boundaries of what they're putting into it, uh in terms of the comic code. So uh basically we're with Blade's opening scene, um, you actually see him throwing the knife and actually stabbing the vampire in the back. Yeah. And then I think it's I'm trying to find the exact panel, but I think it talks about yeah, and on page two twenty three, it says like so and brings it down hard, severing the neck of the fanged one, finishing the ugly work. Oh yeah. I was I was surprised by that when I read that. I'm like, Oh wow, that's a little edgy for Marvel, especially for it to not be in one of the magazine.
0: Mm-hmm. And you don't actually see the deed, but you see a little the blood squirting. It's all right. colored black, not red, but it's there. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that was just interesting for me to see.
0: Uh okay. And we get a little epilogue that leads us into the next issue. The caretakers are watching the arrival of Morbius back on Earth. So they are they are aware he's back. What are they going to do with that information? I don't know. Uh, in the epic collection now, we move to Vampire Tales issues 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. But we're not going to talk about those stories right now. Um, I think they placed them here just because they ran chronologically at the same time uh but they wanted to make sure but they t- all take place on earth so they wanted to make sure Morbius got back to earth in the epic collection before they tell more earth stories now i haven't read these ones i skipped over them so i i don't know if there's any continuity bits that we need to be aware of but i really don't think that there is
1: from what i remember they're pretty standalone yeah um again i think we had the one reference to Martin being supposedly killed but other than that they're very standalone and those are were- I should probably some of my favorite stories in this book, so it'll be fun to talk about them later on.
0: Yeah, for sure. But this one is Adventure into Fear number 25. It's called And What of a Vampire's Blood. And now we have a new writer, Doug Mensch and Frank Robbins on the arts, another new art team. Now, this one still credits Steve Gerber with the plot, and Doug Mensch is just scripting, so I assume that Steve handed over his notes to Doug so that he could finish the job. Uh, but yeah, we have Frank Robbins, and a lot of people are not Frank Robbins fans. A lot of people don't like how how cartoony and kind of out there his art is compared to what else was kind of standard in the 70s, especially like, you know, John Romita and whatever. Uh, personally, I don't have a problem with this at all. I like this this artwork. I like the more cartoony aspect. It kind of reminds me of uh, a little bit more of a stylized Bruce Tim from Batman, that kind of thing. I think yeah. he. I think his work needs to be on the right title, because he also is the primary artist for the Invaders at this time as well, which I think is not as great of a fit. Uh, because they're trying to do more army comics and and be more standard adventure but when you get some loony loony stuff like this with morbius and such his style works actually really well
1: yeah i didn't have any issues with it i mean again you could definitely notice the shift in style moving yeah. on to this issue but i thought it worked really well and especially with how just crazy this story gets it i think it fits the tone of the story very well
0: this is also later in frank robin's career. He's been a comic artist for a long time at this point, and his style has changed quite drastically by the time we get to the 70s. For those of you who are not Frank Robbins fans, I encourage you to check out when he was doing comic strip work on Johnny Hazard, because his style is very different. And it's really, really, really great. And I think that anybody who doesn't like Frank Robbins here will really enjoy Frank Robbins, you know, of the 1940s, when he was doing Johnny Hazard. So check that out, (laughs) if you can find those books. Uh, but in this issue, Morbius gets sucked back into the caretaker daemon conflict. And at first, he is like, he meets up with Tara again, the little girl. And he's like, he, he he's not going to help her out. But then he gets attacked by demons sent by the caretaker. So he's like, okay, I guess we have to team up. And you're right when you're like all of a sudden, we feel like things are rushing to a conclusion because in this one issue, um, we get we meet back up with Mar- Martine. She's here. Uh, we get an origin story for Morbius. We also get a one page recap of everything that's been going on again. And we, we we get thrown into this this giant fight between the demons with the the caretakers. Um, what are they like their bodyguards or whatever? They have all these jetpacks on and stuff.
1: Yeah, they, they're just called like the uniformed agents. Yeah, the
0: uniformed agents, and then also the demons that are 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 called forth by Damon. And Morbius is just kind of there. He's like, I don't want to have anything to do with either of you two people. I just want to be here with my fiance. Um, it's just kind of a weird issue. There is uh there's a lot to say about the next issue, but I don't have a whole lot to say about this one as it's just kind of a fight and setting up for what's going to come next. One thing that I do want to say is that Morbius can't help sucking Martine's blood, which is, I think the most tragic thing that happens in this whole book. And they don't put a whole lot of attention onto it. But he is so hungry that he can't help sucking her blood, and he instantly regrets it. But he only took enough that she just kind of passes passes out. Um, right. Yeah.
1: yeah, no, I was actually just going to comment on that, too, how that's the first time that ever happened. And it could have gone in different ways. I mean, it could have led to a lot of trust issues between Martine and her ultimately like, almost rejecting Morbius. But mm. luckily, as we'll see, it doesn't really go down that route. But yeah, this... This overall issue is just kind of a odd issue, in my opinion, um, with how fast things are ramping up. I feel like there was a lot of wasted space in this issue because while there is a lot going on, I feel like not much actually happens yeah, to exactly. move the plot forward yeah. with how few issues are remaining because it really just is a team up with Terra and we find out that Damons absorbs all this energy from his fallen servants and just becomes more powerful. But that's really
0: it. Yeah, okay. Well, let's... <laughs> Because that's really it. Let's jump over to Adventure Into Fear number 26.
1: All right. So 26. This is the conclusion of the story arc. Yeah. Yeah. So in this issue, Morbius is captured by Damon and is brought back to his mansion where he is to be sacrificed. And in doing so, Damon will be able to absorb the power of Morbius and finally be able to take uh, overtake the caretakers. Um when the caretakers realize this, they end up teleporting to the mansion in order to save Morbius so that Damon doesn't gain that power and therefore have the ability to destroy their second Genesis project. Um we do also learn that Tara is still alive, which we thought she actually died in the last issue. Oh yeah,
0: I was gonna mention that. Yeah, as I was paging
1: through it and I couldn't find that panel. So I thought it happened in the next one, but I guess it did happen in this last issue.
0: I'll tell you where it was. It's because it's it's a flash and you miss it. Kind of, it's on page three sixty two. Yeah, on the very bottom panel there. Um, I was actually surprised that they killed off a little girl in the. In it was like, whoa, they yeah. actually did
1: that. Right, that was definitely a risky move.
0: Yeah, but not as but... risky when you find out that it never really happened.
1: Exactly, so yeah, so Tara ends up saving Morbius and uh, takes him back to the caretakers' lab where we find the embryo tanks that are that have the project Genesis. This is where the story really just it ramps up really quickly, and uh, it's just kind of one revelation after the next, yeah. During this time, we learned that Tara is uh, the prototype superhuman of the Second Genesis Project. And we also learned that she is in this perpetual cycle of aging from child to adult to elderly and then being reborn as a child. So she can't die. And it's... Uh, She describes it as kind of her own personal hell Mm. being in this cycle. So when the caretakers and Damon realize that Tara is back at the lab with Morbius alone, they are kind of for whatever reason uh, scared by this fact. And so they all head back to the lab and it is then revealed that Tara is a psychic vampire who feeds on chaos and terror. And we learn that she is actually the one that's responsible for the war between sorcery and science. So she's the one that's actually, she actually manipulated the caretakers and Damon into this battle so that she could feed off of the chaos that comes from it.
0: And Damon was a caretaker himself
1: that was a whole nother thing is which he didn't even know it she manipulated him over time from a caretaker into just the complete opposite which is instead of science believing in sorcery yeah. and hating science
0: yeah just absolutely bonkers and then in the end everybody dies like what yeah. <laughs> and then we get just like one panel wrap-up as morbius flies away it's like oh it's over <laughs> Like holy cow! Right. Yeah, I uh, these issues, these last few issues are just bizarre. Like I, and I think Doug Mensch was brought in to wrap up the story. I I haven't read the next part. Let me just check to see. Is Doug Mench the regular writer moving forward? Yeah, he's the regular writer moving forward for Adventure Into Fear. So I think that my guess is he like, okay, I got to wrap up this story. I got my notes from Steve Gerber, but holy cow, there's like five more issues of content here, but I don't want to do this. So I'm just going to wrap it up right now. Right.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, I would have liked the issue to be kind of drawn out between like two or three more just so it was more digestible because yeah i feel like i was not the biggest fan of how they wrapped it up just all in one issue with so many revelations that each revelation could have been presented in its own issue but yeah here we get them just rapid fire page after page
0: and morbius does nothing through this all he's just there yeah
1: aside from finishing Terra off because she kind of goads him into killing her. Because kind of like the people back on Arcturus, it kind of sounds like she wants to die. She doesn't want to live, but she can't yeah. kill herself. So he, she kind of goads him into saying, well, I'm just going to destroy the world over time. And that is what kind of pushes him over the edge and results in him actually draining her
0: yeah so like like the conflict like i said this this is a theme that pretty much through all of these issues of him having to choose whether or not he's going to kill somebody this is the time where he actually chooses to do it and it's because she Mm -hmm. ends up being the big bad uh and yeah just uh what an ending (laughs) yeah just don't know don't know what to think about that (laughs) Was it worth it? Do you think the trip through all of these adventures into fear, going through the land within, Arcturus, beating Blade and everything, and then ending here is satisfying to you?
1: I definitely think so Yeah. because um, the, yeah, the adventure into fear issues were still my favorite part of this book. And I just had so much fun going through the different worlds and just more that sci-fi aspect that Steve Gerber introduced. And even though it was a rushed ending, I feel like it was still satisfying enough for me to overall give a positive review on this story arc and yeah. the book overall.
0: I think I'll agree with you on that. I think that it it is a lot of fun um, well, I can see why people think it's terrible because it's it, it appears so disjointed um, because of the multiple writers because it just goes in different directions uh, with seemingly no no through line at all. But the fact that they kind of were able to bring it back around full circle to the end and give us a conclusion is nice. And uh, and uh, yeah, like you said, it's rushed, but they did pull it off.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, and especially since not every series gets nicely wrapped up like this. Sometimes there are just loose ends that go unresolved for a long time until some other writer just goes and fills in the blanks like a decade later so yeah we did at least get an ending
0: well and I'm interested to see where this goes because now it's really an open slate uh, because Martine is back in the picture which we'll find out in this werewolf issue that we're going to talk about next but Doug Mensch kind of can go anywhere he wants he's wrapped up all the Steve Gerber's plot lines and now he can do the Morbius that he wants to do and I'm a big Doug Mensch fan I really like his work so I I'm eager I am to too. see what happens next. But before we go there, one more issue to talk about. Giant size werewolf number four. Morbius's story continues in this issue here. It's uh, it's interesting because we get a very big revelation in this issue, which isn't part of his own series. So, you know, it, we have a meeting. It's called A Meeting of Blood. And we have uh, Morbius meeting Werewolf from the Werewolf by Night comics. And he has been searching for a long time for Martine. He doesn't know where she went. And I had to flick back through the last issue to find out what exactly did happen to Martine during this whole conflict. Right. And she just kind of disappears. Nothing actually happens to her. So she just kind of escapes the conflict. And Morbius has been spending months trying to look for her and finds her. But she's kind of in the state of um, amnesia where she doesn't know even who Morbius is. But Morbius explains what happened to her, which serves as a recap for us readers and manages to bring back her memory. And so that's nice. And they are reunited. And finally, we're at the point where she accepts him for who he is and the state that he's in and is willing to help him. Really, this is a Morbius story. It's not a werewolf story. The werewolf actually takes the back seat to this, which actually is a common thing throughout the Werewolf by Night Comics. It it focuses on a couple of characters, tells their story, and then how the werewolf affects their lives. And this is kind of the same thing. It's a Morbius story. Then the werewolf comes in and kind of makes a mess of things. Uh, but not too much of a mess. Really, if you took the werewolf out the... The only thing that happens of significance is at the end, um, Morbius finds a formula written on a piece of paper that could provide a cure for him, and the werewolf knocks it out of his hand and the formula is lost. But otherwise, um, werewolf doesn't really do a whole lot in this issue. But I'm glad they included it in this collection rather than starting off the next volume with this story because it kind of serves as a nice epilogue to the whole story arc, everything that Morbius has gone through up until this point. It's a nice, it's a little bit more of a quieter ending, but um, it reunites him with Martine and sets him off on the right foot to go off on, on in a new direction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one other plot point that I really liked at the end of it is... When he loses the formula while fighting werewolf, he is enraged and is actually prepared to kill werewolf by night out of vengeance. And there's kind of there's a fun there's a nice dialogue between Martine and Morbius where Martine tells him to stop and that if you kill him, like this is you killing him out of vengeance, and that's on you. That is part of your morality in your character. Yeah. Compared to when you kill out of your vampiric urges, that's it's cool how they make that distinction and kind of keeps Morbius on that moral path.
0: Exactly and even with the last issue when he, he when he killed uh, Terra that was for the sake of you know the survival of the planet uh, whereas this one it was just because he knocked a paper out of his hand like the werewolf didn't deserve that and they already knew that the werewolf was actually a person in a in, like cursed a cursed person rather than an actual monster so yeah I like that point too I thought it was great to re-establish what what Morbius stands for because it kind of got lost in the shuffle with all of these stories that have been coming before it. Uh, One thing I did not like about this issue was all the narration. There's a lot of dialogue, a lot of captions, a lot of boxes. And some of it is told in the werewolf first person, um, mm-hmm. which I can't remember if that's a common thing that happens in the Werewolf by Night comics. I think it is, but then some of it is not. It, some of it is told from the third person because the werewolf isn't present in the scenes, like with Morbius and Martine. So they flip back and forth between it, and sometimes it's really not clear if it's an if you know if it's an omniscient narrator or if it's the or if it's the werewolf narrating. And I thought that could have been right. clearer
1: yeah um i personally haven't read any of the werewolf by night but i've seen his appearances because he's kind of a seems to be a frequent flyer with doug mensch's work because i think he i think there's a story arc during his moon Knight run Mm -hmm. where moon Knight is um meets up with Werewolf by night and that's one thing that always stood out to me what you said is that the narration is i think his main character's name is jack yeah i'm correct um you hear his narration of the werewolf and what he's doing and i always love that story plot but or that um use of storytelling yeah but yeah i definitely always associate world by night being wordier because i definitely remember reading the moon knight issues and thinking oh this is <laughs> a lot to get through kind of reminds me of the early 60s work mm-hmm. where a lot, a lot of dialogue.
0: Well, and he does that on purpose because the werewolf doesn't talk. And so right. Doug Mench, I think a lot of the time is like, well, I got to get my money's worth here. So I'm going to put in dialogue and he might overdo it a little bit. But I do enjoy his writing. Even his more wordy stuff is really nice to read. So. I don't mind it, I just wish that there was more distinction between the two types of narrators that we find in this one story. Right. But otherwise it was nice seeing these two characters who are uh, who both have the same sort of bloodlust I guess because of their curses. Uh, and it's different than the meeting between Morbius and the man-wolf that we saw earlier in this book. Uh, because, they, you know, they're just both different characters, but this one is a true werewolf. So that's always fun when the monsters meet up. And I think we'll see the werewolf and Morbius meet up again in the second volume. They'll have another run in.
1: Yeah, with this issue also, kind of what you were talking about with comparing it to manwolf, man-wolf is... I feel like this almost kind of redeems the man-wolf story about <laughs> yeah. Morbius kind of taking advantage of... Um, Jameson and just using him as a tool where in this, you really compare the two as in reality, you guys are very much the same. Right. Yeah. So I I think that was a very good redemption over Jerry Conway's story.
0: Totally. I agree. Well, and that wraps up our conversation for today. Uh, We will be back again to talk about the second volume again, leaving out the vampire tale stories, but we'll tackle all the other ones and then we'll loop back around to vampire after that. Uh, But thanks, Ryan, for joining me on this. I hope you had a good time.
1: Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun, and it's definitely fun going back and revisiting these stories and talking them through.
0: Perfect. Uh, We will be back next time to talk about that uh, second volume. But in the meantime, I hope everyone has a great, uh, great week. Check out that Morbius movie if you haven't already. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time.